Hey, it's Chaz Mostert here, and yes, I'm inside your speaker. I'm in here because I have a special message for you from Clayton in Melbourne. If you're a club, state, or national racer on the circuit or on the dirt in Speedway or rallying, you can now tap into the know-how of Walkinshaw Racing Services, and you don't need a supercar to get in the door. The same expertise that's won multiple Bathurst 1000s and V8 Supercar Championships is now available for you to call upon. From bonnet to bumper, WRS can help you with engines, design, paint, machining, fabrication, and so much more for all sorts of makes, models, and categories. Have a chat with Walkinshaw Racing Services and tell them what matters to you. Call now on 1300 WRacing or email services at walkinshawracing.com.au. A Motorsport Podcast Network production. G'day race fans, welcome to the Motorsport News Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Dale, and here's what's making headlines this week. Another Bathurst 12-hour has been run and won, and the trophy this year is headed to Stuttgart. Matt Campbell took his second win in Australia's international enduro, leading the 9-1-2 entry to victory, and it's the first win for co-drivers Lawrence Van Thor and Bathurst rookie Ian-Chan Guven. Still on the 12-hour, and we've got a new Mount Panorama lap record for a closed cockpit car. Mercedes-AMG brought a wild-looking modified GT3 car to the mount, and Jules Gounon took it around in the best of 1 minute 56.6054 seconds, and we'll hear from him later in the show about the lap itself. You might not have seen it on TV, but supercars did a bit more parody work during the 12-hour weekend, with a single car each from Triple Eight and Dick Johnson Racing doing the runs on Friday and Saturday. They were measuring aero and engine characteristics with a focus on straight-line performance before locking in a final spec for this weekend's opening championship round. We won't be seeing the TCR World Tour on our shores in 2024. The informal TCR World Title Series has announced it won't be coming back down under this year. ARG is still hoping to attract some overseas stars to drive local cars at this year's Bathurst International. And rising star Nathan Hearn led the Aussies to a clear win over the Kiwis in the TA2 Trans-Tasman title at Highlands Motorsport Park. He won all the races, even snagging a $1,000 bonus put up by SP Tools if he could win the finale from the back of the grid. Joining me as always is V8 Sleuth's Head of Publications, Stefan Bartholomeus. And Stefan, I apologise in advance to both you and also all of you wonderful listeners if I sound a bit discombobulated today because I've definitely not caught up on sleep after the 12 hour. Hello, Will. I think if you're still using big words like discombobulated, then you can't be going too badly, <laughs> I wouldn't have thought. This uh, podcast feels like a bit of a midweek baton change for us, though. You're at the Bathurst 12 hour on the weekend. I'll be heading up there tomorrow for the uh, Super V8s. So I hope you've uh, left the mountain nice and tidy for me. I've done my best. I did no graffiti work whatsoever, and I'll pop my hand in the air and high five you on the way through. Very good. Right, let's start with our Stars of the Week. Steph, who's getting yours? Well, I'm going with the obvious this week and giving my Star of the Week to Matt Campbell. He obviously drove superbly on Sunday to lead Porsche to victory in the Bathurst 12-hour, and he's just such a great Aussie success story to go from racing a Datsun 1200 out at Morgan Park to being a Porsche star, winning the Daytona 24-hour one month, and then obviously Bathurst the next. It's just amazing, and it's it's great that we've got an international GT race in Australia 
in which he can show everyone here just how good he is. It is it is nice to be able to remind all the people at home who don't get up and watch the live streams at various hours of the night to see him in action. Um, I've also gone for a visiting 12-hour driver. It's Maxime Martin who's getting my star this week. He sh- the, um, the Belgian shared the number 46 BMW with Valentino Rossi and Raffaele Marciello. One of the things I really love about all these visiting GT stars is they're never going to die wondering, are they? I mean, we saw on various occasions during the race that if there was a sniff of a pass on, well, it was like throwing a chop into a pool of piranhas. I mean, but look, for big moves or attempted big moves in his case, uh, Maxime's attempt to turn fourth place into second in the closing stages epitomizes that full send philosophy, even if it didn't quite come off. So he might not have gotten a trophy from the weekend, but he does get a star that he can share with Lello and the Doctor. Right, it was a busy old Bathurst 12-hour over the weekend. We had sun, rain, teams fumbling over rules, slower cars shunting, and an Aussie winner who doesn't live on Conrod Strait. Uh, Steph, you avoided the best and worst of Mount Panorama weather by watching it from the couch. What do you reckon of the race overall? Well, let's not pretend you were out there braving the conditions. I mean, <laughs> you would have been nicely sheltered in that media centre while that storm front was coming through. So uh, don't hang me out to dry there. But overall, I think it was a pretty entertaining race, probably despite itself in some ways. Like the whole thing seems to be just regulated to within an inch of its life in terms of pit stop rules and balance of performance and all of those things. So the risk then with everyone on the same strategy and going the same speed is there's no passing or action at all. But, I mean, the weather obviously helped a bit. And then obviously you had the GT4 and the Invitational class cars that caused some chaos and, and shook it up too. So I think with with that, like the speed differential and the amount of yellows caused by those class cars probably opens the conversation about their place in the event going forward. But purely from an entertainment point of view they certainly added a bit of randomness to the whole thing they sure did uh, i feel like the gt4 and the invitational the the non-gt3 runners let's call them uh, i feel like you either have to have a big field of them especially the gt4 cars since they're a bit more plentiful or just just get rid of them and just have a purely gt3 race um, as you said the speed difference between all those cars was like scary at various points and as we saw with the Janetta and Charles Vitz in the BMW um, getting it wrong has some very large consequences uh, I, I feel like it was a good race maybe not a great race I mean sort of alluding to what you just said bless Julien Boileau in that invitational class vortex I mean had he not beached it on the curb at Griffins and brought out that last safety car I mean those closing stages would have been a real blowout because that 912 Porsche just had everyone covered, even with the pit lane penalties they copped just past halfway. Um, the rules, as you say, were a pretty big talking point after the event. Um, so there was a balance of performance change during the weekend that effectively limited all the cars to a maximum stint length of 32 laps, although even that had a bit of an asterisk with it because it was if there were any safety cars in the stint or rain in the stint or if you demonstrated that you actually saved a lot of fuel, then then maybe it wasn't 32. Um, but it definitely wasn't the 37 that David Reynolds squeaked out of the um, Grupper M car that got him penalised. Um, then you had the maximum pit stop time of 85 seconds counted from pit entry to pit exit, but only if you added fuel or changed drivers. So there was a bit to 
it was standard GT stuff. I mean, there was a there was a laundry list of rules you had to try and work out on the fly if you're watching at home or in the garage. Um, here's what some of the podium getters had to say about it in the post-race press conference. First, we'll hear from race winner Matt Campbell, then third-place finisher Kelvin Vondelinder, and then second-placed Kenny Habul. Uh, I mean, all, all I'll say is I sort of missed a... Uh the more strategy input from the team and, and also that requires uh, more effort from the driver as well with uh, fuel management and everything like that. So I really like that style of racing. I think that's proper endurance. Um, obviously in this day and age, you know, the cars can last, you know, 12, 24 hours, no problem. So bringing this aspect back, um, I, I really enjoy and it, it's sort of closer to uh, the style of IMSA racing, let's say, with a little bit going on behind the scenes. So um, yeah, I, I really, really enjoy this factor. Um, yeah, to be honest, I have to say from a driver's perspective, being really brutally honest, I think the rules for this year have been pretty disappointing in terms of the, the entertainment factor. Um, I think Bathurst is always a race we looked forward to, which had you know, a bit of strategy in there, a bit of fuel saving, it really challenged the teams and the drivers to, to do things out of the box and it felt at times in the race we were just driving in a train and, and waiting, I was basically just looking on the dash and counting the, the minutes down to the pit stop, which is you know, at times quite frustrating for us. So hopefully we can we can do better and just give a better uh, entertainment for, for, for the crowd next year. I think that that's what we've got to work on. Uh, look, I think I'll agree with Kelvin. I, I don't think it was the right thing to do. I think it was, it just sort of leveled the field out. And it doesn't matter what sort of car you had or if you were normally a 20th place car, like they took all the advantage away from everybody to keep everybody at the end on the last lap to give it a show. And to be honest, the theory of that is fine, but I think there's a way to find something in the middle where, you know, you can have a pit stop control time, but not as long as this one, or you can have other things where you have some control and you help other teams that would normally finish 8th, 10th, 12th, 14th to give them a chance. But this was just, like, it took all the strategy away. It took everything away, and it just really mattered in the end if you were there or not. Um, So to me, it was a little too far two radicals and, and really sort of set up like an am race. And that was difficult, you know, but I think there's a balance. I see what they're trying to do. And, um, you know, you want everybody there at the end for a fight. And it was pretty good. There's still, you know, six, seven cars at the end. It was exciting, but um, it took a lot of normal racing strategy and technique and the dynamic of racing away from today. So I think there's somewhere in the middle they should they, they could find. Steph, I do get what they were saying. Um- I'm not one of those people that's all, there's too many rules, there's too many rules, but I do think maximizing, sorry, I do think minimizing the fuel saving option really hurt the race because it meant you didn't have anywhere near as much performance differences between the cars or strategy differences. And like you said before, if you want to make a pass, you really, you had to do pretty well to do that on the track and doing doing that in these high downforce GT3 cars, it's pretty well impossible around the mountain. Well, I mean, I'm definitely one of those people saying there's too many rules. <laughs> I was afraid to go and have lunch because I thought I might get some sort of penalty. But <laughs> you, you look at on that, like you look at the fuel stuff alone and you sort of rattled through a couple of them there. So there's a rule limiting the fuel tank capacity on the cars. There's a rule mandating a minimum pit stop time. And there's another rule saying you can't do more than 32 laps in a stint. So right there, you've got three rules that are basically doing largely the same thing. Mm. And then you throw in the fact that the 32-lap rule was really vaguely worded and you've just got this 
regulation soup that the poor stewards had to go through and, and apply. And it just feels over-regulated and it results in that problem that the drivers were talking about where everyone is on the same strategy and doing the same thing. I, I think strategically the best thing we saw all day was Brendan Hogan pitting the STM Mercedes and keeping hot wets on it. They, they got a good gain out of that, but it was hard to really do anything out of the box. Taylor, that was a really smart move. And the Porsche team did something similar uh, in the morning stints when the track was still quite cold. They kept the hot tyres on from the previous stint and basically allowed them to not just lead the race, but then pull an extra 10 seconds over the second place car as it battled to get tyre temp up. Um, another thing we got to see properly in action for the first time was the full course yellow procedure, which is also going to make its debut in the Supercars Championship this weekend. We're Pretty well exactly as a virtual safety car does in Formula 1, including how it effectively gives you a free pit stop when the full course yellow is in action. And it also showed how it's really going to change how safety car periods will impact race strategy. Uh, The other trick is that it wasn't actually that easy to tell from the outside whether the track had only gone full course yellow or if there was genuinely a safety car out. Uh, I don't think um, I don't think Nats off live timing accounts for it, nor the TV graphics, because there was a bit of confusion over whether there was a safety car out or not in that late race period when Thomas Randall was leading. Uh, Steph, how did that all look to you from the couch? Was it easy to follow? Well, yeah. I mean, obviously the TV graphics, a lot of that seemed to be just um, taken straight off the supercars broadcast. So they weren't all necessarily tailored for the event and hopefully they do have something on the full course yellow for supercars considering it's going to be implemented there. But Overall, it did look like it was pretty effective in bringing the field under control quicker when an incident occurred, which Mm. is certainly a very good thing. There looked like there was a bit of confusion coming out of the full course yellow with cars accelerating at different times, but we'll have to see how that goes in a supercars race where you've got all professional drivers and things like that. That might not be such an issue, but um, certainly the element that was frustrating watching on the TV was how long some of the actual safety car periods went for they just seemed to stretch on forever and part of that was things like the the lucky dog rule that just um elongates the safety car interruptions so i will say that i was i actually was changing to thomas randall after the race he's getting a decent run in this week's podcast um i'll i'll say asking him about the whole full course yellow thing and he did say that on the triple two car at the very least there's no there was no dash monitor telling him okay, the full course yellow is on or okay, the full course yellow is about to end. He was purely at the, um, he was strictly reliant on his engineer to um, tell him the countdown and follow what James Taylor in race control was saying on the race management channel. So if there was any discrepancy between your engineer and another, let's say more aggressive engineer, um, that might've led to a bit of um, disparity in when you restarted the race compared to everyone else. Of course, in supercars, they do have all those dash information systems that will make that a lot clearer. So that's likely not to be an issue this weekend should we see a full course yellow. Uh, Now, one of the cool side shows at the 12 hour was the visiting machinery that were doing high speed demo laps on Friday and Saturday. Last year, we had that Red Bull F1 car. Uh, this year, we had a couple of mo- couple of very interesting machines. Uh, as I said at the top of the show, Mercedes-AMG decided to do a big flex and try and break the Mount Panorama lap record to kick off its 130th year in motorsport. And the car they brought was out a um, modified GT3 car and some of the mods, I mean, it had this honking big rear wing complete with a DRS system off the last of its Class 1 DTM cars. 
Uh, there was all new bodywork at the front with a much bigger splitter and all these vents on the guards to channel out air and generate bulk downforce. There were new side skirts too. Under the bonnet, they got rid of the balance of performance air restrictor. And they also ditched the mufflers and ran a straight pipe exhaust system. So it sounded absolutely magnificent trackside. I don't know how it sounded um, on TV. Uh, there was also a big bank of Mercedes AMG engineers who, well, I don't think they were any seconded from any of the teams that were running the 12-hour. I think they were just there for the record attempt. Uh, and they also had a bit of help from Triple Eight in running the car. I saw Mark Dutton and Ty Friel down there helping with the pit stops. And I say pit stops because they were running it on low fuel the whole time and just topping it up a few litres at a time between runs. And they were also fitting brand new sticker tyres, which were fresh out of a makeshift oven in the paddock. So they were up to temperature as soon as the car headed out on the track. Uh, the old mark was held by Luke Yulden in the Bram BT62 at a 1 minute 58.6 set back in 2019. While the fastest ever lap by a GT3 car was done by Chris Mees in an Audi at Challenge Bathurst back in 2018 when they took all the BOP restrictions off and he went out and turned a 159. Jules Gounon got the Guernsey to drive the Mercedes on the weekend and he was fair up at the whole time. Uh, he brought the record down to a 1 minute 56.6054 and that was on his second run of Saturday morning session because he fairly smacked the wall at Reed Park on his first run. Uh, I grabbed Jules after the race to chat about it and while a lot of people compared his 56 to the two minute flat time that Murrow Engel did to secure pole at last year's 12 hour and they all talked about the four-second gain. Jules made the point that it was actually, given the conditions, probably a fair bit more than that. If you compare this weekend, the fastest ever lap was 2.19. So that's more like six seconds, you know, five, at least five and a half seconds minimum. Um, so it was also very difficult for me to jump in between because the cars are very different and the other car was so quick through the mountain. It was huge commitment. And uh, I did a hair transplant this winter, but I already lost some. Uh, by doing this lap, I already lost some hair, I can tell you, because it was scary. 2.46 uh, on the video, it shows 2.41, but 2.46 at Skyline, that's uh, insane, you know. It's around 30 kph quicker than a GT3, which is already super quick. So it was just a fantastic car, and uh, I, I'm proud also to have been able to do that. I see you also clipped the wall at Reed Park on one of the runs. So that was uh, the first day, we were doing 58, then 57, and then I was like, you know what, this morning I need to go all out. I do like a Super Bowl lap, and I entered Reed Park in fourth, tried it flat, nearly flat, and I, in the middle I realized like, fuck, this is going to be big. And I was surprised how much the car hold because the heat was massive, and I bounced back across the track, and I really, I was really lucky to not crash. That was my first attempt, so I was already shaking after that. And then I, I, the next lap, I was like, okay, let's disconnect again the brain and we do it again, and it went. I, I don't know whether fun's the right word, but is it nice as a driver to just be getting, you know, hot tyres fresh out of the oven and being told to go flat out on low fuel again and again and again and again? It was cool and scary at the same time, because honestly, the speed across the wall uh, was like, if I have a failure, I might hurt myself very bad. So I really enjoyed doing the lap, but I also really enjoyed when it was done. <laughs> Thank you to Jules for the chat. We've also got the onboard video of that lap on the V8 Sleuth YouTube channel and there's a link to it in the show notes. Go check it out. It is absolutely nuts. Yeah, that video is certainly worth a watch. It uh, looks pretty hairy doing those sort of speeds across the top. It was interesting that they'd uh, grabbed the DRS system off the DTM car 
sort of made me wonder whether that's the answer to getting a bit more overtaking in the 12 hour, although probably a tricky thing to introduce to a pro-am race, I'd imagine. But um, overall, I think it's good to have these sort of demos and, and lap record attempts at the 12 hour, create some talking points outside of the main race itself. Obviously, they had the Red Bull F1 demo last year. This time they had the Mercedes and also the Ford Supervan. What ended up uh, being the score with that? I don't think we saw a lap time for it. No, we didn't. I, I got to say, it's the thing was mega impressive um, when it's on full beans in person, provided you actually heard it coming. Because the things, of course, not having an internal combustion engine, you're entirely reliant on the loud, loud sort of electric and whirring noise that's coming from it that's nowhere near as loud um, to know it's coming. And it's got heaps of power. I mean, it did a four-wheel burnout all the way from Murray's Corner to Hell Corner and left more smoke than most dragster demos, but it didn't actually turn a complete lap at full speed over the weekend. Um, From what I gather, Ford was instead focusing on getting everything right across the top um, and just sort of coasting down the straights because, well, they've got time on their side. Mercedes had to get the job done on the 12-hour weekend, but Ford's going to have Supervan 4.2 back at Mount Panorama this weekend for the 500 where it'll be on track again and hopefully fingers crossed we'll see how fast it can go uh roman dumas did have a bit of a dip down the hill at one stage though and i'm very reliably informed um that the van was pulling 250 kilometers an hour by the kink after the exit of forest's elbow so uh it's plenty quick that is quick so yeah hopefully we see it do a lap time, I think temperature would be pretty hard to manage in that thing. Like every time I saw a little video of it, there seemed to be fans and everything plugged in mm. uh, trying to cool it down. So we'll see what the conditions sort of provide for it and, and what it does. But um, there was actually another lap record set on the weekend that you haven't mentioned, and that's <laughs> your record for the slowest ever lap in a Bathurst 12-hour practice <laughs> session. So how exactly did you end up in a bus on a live racetrack? Yeah, important to clarify, I wasn't the driver, so let's um, let's get my name away from that in terms of the speed. Um, I'm absolutely never forgetting this as long as I live. So if you were watching the live feed on Practice 4 on Friday afternoon, afternoon, you'd have seen this silver Mercedes Sprinter van out on the track at the start of the session along with a full Bathurst 12-hour field and getting carved up by all manner of GT4 cars on the run down the hill. So... It's part of this circuit safari concept, which I think it I think it comes from Japan, the basic idea. I mean, they do it at the Nismo Festival at Fuji. I think I've seen it done at a couple of Super GT events as well. And if you think back, we've done it here in Australia a little while ago now at the Sandown 500 in a special demo session where Nissan sent a bus out on track with its supercars, uh, some of its Group A GTRs and one of its old Le Mans sports cars. Uh, But by my reckoning, I think it's the first time it's ever been done in Australia during a real live practice session with real live platinum, gold, silver and bronze drivers in um, some very expensive and very fast GT machinery going around it. Uh, I don't think it was publicised or flagged ahead of the weekend. And to be honest, the first I knew about it was when I ran into the voice of the 12-hour, Richard Crail, in the media centre just after lunchtime on Friday Arvo, and he said to me, so what are you doing at 1.50? And let me tell you, I had no other answer but going and doing this. Uh, So there were only a handful of people on board. So I think along with myself, there was Michael Zalavari from Daily Sports Car, uh, the boys from Bathurst's own Reckless Brewing were there too, 
Uh, a couple of supercars personnel, including the event director, Shane Rudzis, who I think was probably more nervous than any of us, but he was kind and didn't show it until we all got safely back to the paddock. And the driver, here's a name some of our longer-term fans might remember, Christian DeGostin, seven-time Bathurst 1000 starter with both Perkins Engineering and Richard Mork, among others. Uh, that might have been his slowest ever lap around Mount Panorama as well. Uh, the way it worked was, well, we we got a one-minute head start on the field, which isn't really much when you capped at 80 kilometres an hour. So I think, um, I think we were just at or past the hump on Mountain Straight when the call came through, pit exit open. Um, so at that point, we all sort started swiveling around and looking behind us to see where they all were. And we were just out of Griffins when we sighted Lucas Stoltz in the Sun Energy 1 Merc coming over the hump. And then he whizzed past us on the run to the cutting. And wow, like that, that was, that was a thing. Let me tell you, that was, that was an enjoyable thing to be very close to and also mildly terrifying. Um, and the plan was that we just stuck hard to the left of the track as the rest of the field went by. I'm told I'm told they were all worded up what to expect, and there weren't any particularly close calls, although I reckon whoever was in the number two Audi at the time decided to give us a bit of a scare on the way into McPhilmy, but honestly, it was one of the most fun and utterly ridiculous things I've ever been involved in. And I can now say I've been passed on the racetrack by Valentino Rossi. So, um, yeah, there's that. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's just a very cool story, and uh, I'm glad you guys stuck to the left-hand side of the track, though, because... Otherwise, there would have been a whole bunch of GT3 cars doing Tony Hawk-style grinds along the outside wall at the cutting. Uh, we at least only had one of those on Sunday. Every lap in under a minute means every second matters. Bosch Power Tools Perth Super Sprint, May 17 to 19. Book now at Tick Attack. Supercars unforgettable. The Repco Supercars Championship is here for 2024 with all the action getting underway this weekend at Mount Panorama with the thrifty Bathurst 500. And of course, you can watch all the racing on Seven, Fox Sports or KO across the weekend. Now, before we get stuck into our predictions for 2024, let's have a look at who won the preseason Grand Prix. Steph, who's making your podium from launch season? Clearly the most important part of the year, how you get out of the blocks for the uh, the launch season. And for me, I think there were three standouts. I'm giving the Blanchard Racing Team third place because any time you run a supercar around the Calder Park Thunderdome, you deserve some sort of prize. That was very cool what they did there. And I'm even overlooking the fact they had black wheels on their cars, which we all know don't look the best. Second place for me goes to Tickford Racing, which rolled their liveries out with a great video featuring Cam and Thomas discussing ideas for how to do a launch video. And I think Tickford have just done a great job allowing their drivers to show some personality through their video content over the last year or so, and long may they continue to do that. But the win, I've got to give it to Triple Eight. I mean, the way they executed their launch out at Toowoomba's World Camp Airport was fantastic. When you look at the fact they attracted 9,000 people out there and the media coverage they got, I think they really took it to another level over everyone else. What's your uh, what's your preseason podium? So I actually, it occurs to me that maybe we interpreted this a bit differently because I actually looked at more the liveries than I did the launches itself. Although I guess it, it didn't actually really change who made it up there. Although there was a there was a slight difference. Um, I reckon it's been a very strong year for liveries this year, and for mine, 
it's the new Castrol livery on Thomas Randall's number fifty five must. He's he's back again. I, he I he's really getting a run in this this week. Um, but that car for mine is the pick of the field this year. Although um, the splash of Coca Cola red on the rear really makes it pop. Uh, especially if you happen to have a copy of the 2024 official Repco Supercars Championship Season Guide where you can see what the car looked like before they did that deal. Uh, anyway, it also turns out I'm a big fan of teal on race cars, so James Courtney's number seven Snowy River Caravans Mustang gets the runner-up spot for Blanchard Racing Team. Um, and I liked it so much, I actually managed to completely overlook the fact that it had black wheels. I, I dead set didn't notice that until um, you've <laughs> just pointed it out. And I'm not normally a fan, but... Uh, here we are. Um, so, <laughs> I, I couldn't I couldn't let this go without without handing third place. Look, the Triple Eight cars look fantastic. There's a lot of cars out there that look really really good, but there's only one out there that has the driver's face on the bonnet. So, third place bronze medal, Andre Heimgartner's RNJ batteries livery. Because yeah, I just can't get past that. Uh, on to the big questions for season 2024, though. First up, Steph, will the parity be right? It's obviously going to be under a huge spotlight after what happened last year and the amount of money that's been spent on getting it right for this year. So for sure, there'll be some pretty nervous people at Supercars waiting to see how it all looks at Bathurst and what the drivers are saying about it all as well. I don't think it's a topic that's going to go away entirely because it's about how close in performance, you can get two physically different things. Like you'll mm. never get them exactly the same because they're not the same and you'll never make everyone totally happy. But hopefully it's close enough that it won't dominate the narrative of the season like it did last year. Yeah. Uh, for mine, I, I think it will be closer, but still don't think it'll be spot on for all the reasons you just gave. I, d- I do commend Supercars for the work it's doing now to eliminate those grey areas and look, saying, well, they should have done it in the first place doesn't really help fix it now. Um, I'm sure if they could hop in a DeLorean with a bag of engine maps and gurney flaps, they probably would. Uh, But it's being done now, so here we are. Uh, I just hope that both manufacturers are genuinely putting their best feet forward through all this expensive testing and not trying to game the system for their own means, because that has certainly never happened before in the history of motor racing. That's spoken like a man who's just experienced the Bathurst 12 hour with uh, balance of performance changes coming out every <laughs> half an hour on the half an hour. Uh, thank goodness we don't have BOP and supercars. Not formally, anyway. Uh, next up, who are the contenders? Seth, I reckon it's impossible to go past Triple Eight. I mean, they've had the least change of anyone. They've got a new, one new driver, a couple of new chassis, but same engineers, slightly different car because of all the um, wind tunnel stuff and a bit of engine stuff. Um, they have the best platform of any of the Camaro teams to be successful, so they've got to be the benchmark, surely. Oh, for sure, Triple Eight should be up there. I think overall, without Brody Kostecki or Shane Van Gisbergen on the grid, it does leave the top of the tree feeling pretty open. And you've got those two Triple Eight guys, Brock Feeney and Will Brown, as likely contenders, and then Cam Waters and Chaz Mostert as the main forces on the Ford side. You look at Cam and Chaz and they've both watched, you know, Jamie Wincup, Scott McLaughlin, SVG, and and then Brody do an awful lot of winning during their time in supercars. So there's an element of if not now, then when for mm. those two guys. And there's plenty of others who could be in the conversation too, but I think 
those guys, Feeney, Brown, Waters and Mostert, they loom as the guys most likely to, to make a run for the championship this year. So if those are the contenders, who's most under pressure in 2024? Uh, I've got a couple of names in mind. Uh, Walkinshaw and Andretti United, I think it's a pretty important year for them. That whole parody saga must have been incle- incredibly frustrating for them and for Chaz all through last year. But it's funny to think that Chaz was actually the most consistent Ford driver across the year and ended up fourth in points as the best of the Mustang runners when he didn't actually get a win all year which must be especially grinding when Tickford, DJR and Groves all managed to stand atop the dice. Uh, I think it's going to be a fierce battle to be the best Ford team again in 2024 and they really need to be in the thick of that fight. Uh, and sticking with the Ford camp, it's that man again, Thomas Randall. Um, I think he, <laughs> he's, not pay, he's, he's not paying for the mentions, I swear. Um, yeah, I think he's well, he under pressure. wouldn't be paying for this one, I wouldn't. No, think. he certainly wouldn't. Uh, I think he's under pressure this year. I mean, it's his third year on, on the grid in the main game as a full-timer. He had a really strong finish to last year in addition to that breakout weekend at the Bend where he took his first career pole and finished on the podium in all three races. But he needs to keep that going. I mean, there's nowhere to hide now at Tickford. Now they're down to two cars. I mean, we know Cam Waters will be a great benchmark and if he's running at the front of the field, then Thomas needs to be right there with him. Uh, the one good thing for Thomas is that at least he doesn't have contract pressure as part of it all. I mean, he was announced by Tickford late last year as renewing for this year and for beyond. Steph, who do you think is under the gun in 2024? Well, I think you've got to have Jack LeBrock in the mix here. He was obviously signed up by Erebus to replace Will Brown and going up alongside Brody Kostecki was going to be a really tough benchmark for Jack, but in many ways, the pressure on Jack has just ramped up even more now without Brody there because Jack has to come out at the first round and lead this team and be beating Todd Hazelwood, which is no sure thing. I, I think the Erebus cars are every chance of still being quite fast, but it is going to be on the drivers, as we touched on last week, to, to really make the most of it. And the other nomination here that I'd put forward for under pressure really are the two premier racing drivers, James Golding and Tim Slade. Like Premier was the only multi-car team not to get a podium last year and Peter Zuberis clearly wants results and isn't afraid to make changes if he's not getting them. And you look for this year, he's invested heavily in a big change of technical staff. He's brought Ludo Lacroix in as part of that, but he's given his drivers another season. And Slade, he has his chosen engineer back with him now, Mirko De Rosa, who he previously worked with at Blanchard's. And James Golding has enough experience now to be stringing whole weekends together. So I think uh, the pressure will be on to put some results on the board. Next question. What is the great unknown for 2024? I mean, there's no shortage of them this year. Um, for mine, I think I think it's whether or not we see Brody Kostecki in a supercar at any point in 2024. I mean, he's been this story of the off-season and we still, as as we're talking right now, don't have any resolution on his looming divorce with Erebus. And we know, unless something utterly remarkable happens, neither Brody nor the champion's number one will be on the grid this weekend in Bathurst. But surely this gets resolved at some point. So the big question being whether he has to sit out the year entirely through the terms of whatever settlement is decided on. Whether there's a team owner on the grid that's able to sidle their way in with a big bag of cash or maybe even a big bag with one of their existing drivers and walk off with a deal to put Brody in their car for the rest of the season. And um, here's a fun fact. So we lost the rule that was brought in for COVID where 
if a driver has to miss a round because of the old spicy cough, then every driver would have to drop their worst round for the championship standings. But a similar rule was actually added in its place. So for the technically minors, Schedule D, 14.1.7, if a driver or competitor is unable to attend or is forced to withdraw from an event due to force majeure, V8 Supercars Australia, or V8SA, as it's listed um, in the Ops Manual, uh, will in its sole discretion determine the final championship points for the drivers and teams by altering the number of races that will be used to accumulate points, which may include dropping the lowest points accumulated at an event from the final point score for all drivers. Any decision by V8SA in this regard will not be subject to protest or appeal. Now, I'm not saying supercars would do this if Brody can find his way onto the grid for round two, but they could, and if they did, he could still defend his title. Wouldn't that be a wild turn of events? I don't, I don't know if we need another wild turn of events in this, uh, <laughs> in this case. As you say, like until there's an actual resolution to Brody's contract situation, there's going to be speculation about what's going to happen here and whether Erebus does force him to stay on the bench for the whole year or just for six months or however it works out. So clearly that's a huge question mark. But in terms of unknowns for the season, I'm going to nominate Richie Stanaway here as my great unknown for 2024. I think the Bathurst win last year with Triple Eight. It was such a great redemption story, but this is the next step now back in a full-time drive and with a team hitting its straps as well. So Richie's season, it could still go either way, but there's every sign that he's with the right team and in the right headspace to really make it count. And I think as well, starting at Bathurst is a big bonus for him to be able to go somewhere. He's raced the last couple of years and isn't playing catch-up quite as much. Um, and a flying start could be, uh, yeah, very beneficial. I think we'd all love to see Richie just achieving what we all believe he or fulfilling the potential we all believe he has this year in this in this remarkable next chapter of his career that he's been able to get uh, a big one to end on Steph who do you think will be the champion in 2024 it's a tough call between the triple eight guys and cam waters but I think it's all perfectly set up for Brock Feeney to take that next step this season and and go and win the big prize. I mean, his progression to this point has been really strong and everything about his skill level and his attitude suggests he can go to another level again. And, and obviously he's with Triple Eight and they'll be fired up to make amends for a rare case last year of being beaten by another team from the same manufacturer. That is a very, very good point. Um, I'm backing Cam Waters in this battle. Um, if the Mustang and the Camaro are evenly matched, I mean, he's fast, he knows how to win. He really doesn't make mistakes. And if it comes down to a wheel-to-wheel, door-to-door battle, I think I'd, he's probably the best of anyone on the current grid. Um, I, I just think it's time for Cam to add himself to that historic line of supercars champions. Uh, and we'll just quickly run through our traditional tipping of who we think will make up the top 10 in points at the end of the season. So I've got Cam Waters as the champion. I've got Brock Feeney as my runner-up ahead of Triple Eight teammate Will Brown. Chaz Mostert, Matt Payne rounding out the top five, Will Davison in sixth ahead of Andre Heimgartner in seventh, then Thomas Randall, Anton Di Pasquale, and David Reynolds rounding out the top ten. Steph, how about you? It's a really tough year to be making this top ten list, and mm. that's obviously a good thing because it means there's a lot to look forward to about the season. 
but I've ended up with Brockfini on top from Waters, Brown, Mostert, Deeper Squally, Heimgartner, Payne, Davison, Randall, and Reynolds. And I've got to be honest, I really wanted to get Richie Stanaway in there and Todd Hazelwood as well. But uh, yeah, it was just tough to squeeze it down to 10. Well, we'll get those up on social media in the next day or so. So there's nowhere for either of us to hide or make any attempts at revising history come Adelaide in November. Motorsport News mailbag time and following on from our Supercars season preview chat, we asked you on Facebook last night about the teammate battles that you can't wait to see in 2024. Uh, A lot of you put down the new Triple Eight teammates, Will Brown and Brock Feeney. Uh, Dean Anthony says, I think the battle of the season is going to be Will versus Brock. Both have proven that they are capable of winning it and in fantastic form and they're racing for a team that, this mirrors what you said, Steph, will do anything to take back the number one. Watch this space. Uh, Castle Hill Vintage, I presume that's a nom de plume, says, I think Feeney has had a good run, but in reality has also been given a fair amount of latitude given the numbers number of years he's been in the game for now. So he won't have anywhere to hide or SVG there carrying the team to wins and championships anymore. He's got to do it or Brown could easily gain some ascendancy early on. Steph, I think it's hard to see Will unseating Mr. Sunday and what's very quickly become his own team, at least in year one together. Well, it's a great teammate battle to talk about because obviously there's a lot at stake being in that team. There could be a championship on the line between these two guys and, and obviously I've just nominated Brock Feeney as, as the favourite for the title. So overall, I agree with you, but let's not forget that Will is super fast. I mean, if you give him a great car, he'll go and drive the wheels off it. So there'll be days where he gets the better of Brock. So yeah, I think it's going to be a fun battle to watch. A lot of people are also looking forward to the Kiwi on Kiwi battle at Groves, so that's going to be a fascinating one. And in isolation, I really wasn't sure who was going to come out on top, Matt Payne or Richie Stanaway, but when I was putting the top 10 together, um, Matt made it and Richie didn't, so clearly I'm thinking that the youngster's going to have the edge. Uh, What about you? Yeah, I think um, overall, like you, I'm positive on Richie's prospects this year, but when you look at it, it's all set up for Matt to hit the ground running. He had such a phenomenal period at the end of last year, obviously winning the last race in Adelaide, and he takes the same engineer and the same car into 2024. So there's still a bit of a question mark about his consistency in races, but he's got the speed and certainly the potential to achieve great things this year. A couple of people put down Walkinshaw Andretti United's new driver lineup of Chas Mostert and Rapid Kiwi rookie Ryan Wood. Jason Kant says, I'm keen to see it as I don't think that it's a given that Mostert wins that battle. Wood's going to be, I think Wood's going to be quick and I think he will give Chaz a hard time during the year, but that's, I think that'll only spur Chaz on to further because to be honest, the records show he hasn't really had a strong challenge from a teammate since moving to Clayton. Yeah, I mean, this battle is really a free swing for Ryan because, as you say, Chaz has dominated his previous teammates at Walk and Shores and we all know he's a he's an absolute star, whereas Ryan's coming in as a rookie. So, yes, he was fast in Super 2 and his ceiling looks to be pretty high, but the expectations in year one should be quite low for him. I think there's a question mark on Chaz around the change of engineer there and losing Adam DeBore and how he deals with that. But that's going to affect whether he can challenge for the championship. I think either way, he still should have his teammate covered. 
A few people put down Mark Winterbottom and David Reynolds, the old Tickford teammates reunited at Team 18. Uh, Mark Holmes said, what a cracker of a battle the old dogs of the older dogs this will be. Both of them showed last year that they both still know where the top step of the podium is and how to find it, but I reckon I'm giving this one to Dave just because I think he's probably the quicker of the two over one lap at this stage of their careers, and I think that could probably prove pivotal. Yeah, this is another interesting matchup because, you know, Mark is established in the team, but he's got a fresh engineer and he's in the final year of his current contract as well, whereas Dave arrives after that great run of podiums at the end of 2023 with Groves and with a three-year deal in his pocket. So if Dave jumps out of the blocks and goes well early, the stakes could get pretty high for Frosty pretty quickly. Yeah, And and then you look to the other narrative here is that if either of them go really well at Bathurst this weekend, there's going to be a whole another conversation being had around Adrian Burgess going straight from supercars to Team 18. <laughs> you make a very good point. Um We couldn't end the mailbag segment, though, without a couple of shout-outs. One to Stephen Roper, who said Peter Adderton versus the Supercars world is the showdown he was looking forward to. Stephen, I reckon Pedro might just be sticking around in Supercars just quietly. And last but not least, Ross Fingst, who wrote Kostecki and Betty, you cheeky, cheeky devil. Overseas now, and Formula One and MotoGP are about to fire back up for pre-season testing in the Middle East. The two-wheel brigade are in Qatar at the moment, where reigning champion Peko Bagnaia ended the first day under lights at Lusail. On top from title rival Jorge Martin, Jack Miller was down in 14th on the KTM, and he was two spots ahead of Ducati rider Mark Marquez, and that's a phrase that's going to take some getting used to. Formula One, meanwhile, will be back in action in Bahrain later this week with all the action live on Fox Sports and KO. The WRC tackled Rally Sweden and Hyundai driver Esapeka Lappi ended a seven-year winless drought, beating Toyota's Elfin Evans to take his first WRC win since 2017. Lappi's teammate Thierry Neville finished fourth to maintain his lead in the standings. And uh, we've also got a little bit of rally-related news for you right at the end of the show, so stick around for that. The New Zealand Grand Prix went to Kiwi racer Liam Skeets at Highlands Motorsport Park, while Roman Belinsky sealed the Castrol Toyota Formula Regional Oceania Championship, or CT Frock for short, in dramatic fashion, flying over the top of crashing American Jacob Abel on the final corner of the race, but landing ahead of him on the track to nab fifth place. Check out the vision on YouTube because it's absolutely incredible. And in NASCAR, the Great American Race has been run and won for another year. Young William Byron can now count himself as a winner of the Daytona 500. He took the lead on a restart with four laps to go and was still in front on the final tour when a wreck behind him ended the race. Alex Bowman made it a Hendrick Motorsport 1-2, 40 years to the day since the team's very first Cup Series start. Uh, But the big thing we wanted to talk about, of course, was Shane Van Gisbergen's debut on the high banks of Daytona, and he definitely got a real taste of what it's like racing a stock car on a super speedway. Uh, He got four laps into his ARCA series race on Friday night before being swept up in a multi-car crash that he could do absolutely nothing about missing. Unhurt and undaunted, his team fixed the car up and sent him back out to gain more experience, and he ended up finishing the race, I think, 25 or something laps down in 29th place. He had actually been lucky to even start the race too, as technically he didn't qualify. Uh, Arca sends its cars out to qualify in groups on super speedways, and SVG missed the jump on pit lane and lost the draft, so he ended up 
He still managed to end up 35th fastest despite not having a toe. Uh, but unfortunately, only the top 30, 34 cars qualified on sp- on speed, uh, and he was going to be on the sidelines until a higher qualified car withdrew from the race. Uh, surely a deal was done there. Uh, Van Gisbergen then qualified fifth for the Xfinity Series race, and he actually held down provisional pole for quite a while in the session. Uh, but rain forced the race itself to be delayed from Saturday to Sunday morning, and then again from Sunday morning to Monday morning, and then finally from Monday morning to Monday night after the 500. Uh, He was running inside the top 10 early in the second stage when he was caught up in yet another multi-car wreck. Once again, the team patched up the car and back out he went, raced his way back to the front half of the field, then had this wild slide through the tri-oval infield, which he caught and saved and kept going. Uh, Then he dodged another crash on the back straight on the final lap and finished the race in 12th place. Steph, after all that, do you reckon he can't wait to head to a smaller oval? Oh, for sure. Like, I mean, the whole Daytona style of racing was a really unusual thing for him to have to tackle straight up. I was listening to Shane being interviewed on the Stacking Pennies podcast last week, and Corey LeJoy was ribbing him about the fact that the ARCA race in particular would be wild apparently that race is known as the organ donor 200 so um, (laughs) based on that i'd reckon all the drivers would be pretty happy to be driving out of the place and pressing on with their season well even that arca race like the truck race that was held before it the arca race had to get delayed several hours because of how many wrecks were in the truck race it was like the arca race said hold my beer and then just absolutely went for it there looks like there's all sorts of interesting characters in that arca series we need a drive to survive on that 100%. 100%. I would be totally down for that. And if you want to see what we mean, check out some of the Arca Series social media posts over the last weekend. It really highlights the very, very different um, places the drivers in the field come from. Uh, now, a reminder that we've got a few teammates on the Motorsport News podcast this year. So tomorrow we'll have the first episode of the year of Special Stage. And as you might guess from the name, the boys from Rally Sport Magazine, Peter and Luke Witten, are bringing us a regular wrap of all things rallying, both on the world stage and in our own Australian Rally Championship. And on Thursday, we've got the latest episode of the Brad Jones Racing Rundown, where Macaulay Jones and BJR's general manager, Chris Westwood, are joined by the boss, Brad Jones, where they talk about their lead up to the start of the supercar season. Look out for that episode on Thursday. And of course, we'll be back with the Motorsport News podcast next Tuesday with a wrap of all the action on and off the track from the thrifty Bathurst 500. But for now, on behalf of Stephen Bartholomeus, I'm Will Dale. We'll catch you next week on the Motorsport News podcast. Hey, it's Chaz Mostert here, and yes, I'm inside your speaker. I'm in here because I have a special message for you from Clayton in Melbourne. If you're a club, state, or national racer on the circuit or on the dirt in Speedway or rallying, you can now tap into the know-how of Walkinshaw Racing Services, and you don't need a supercar to get in the door. The same expertise that's won multiple Bathurst 1000s and V8 Supercar Championships is now available for you to call upon. From bonnet to bumper, WRS can help you with engines, design, paint, machining, fabrication, and so much more for all sorts of makes, models, and categories. Have a chat with Walkinshaw Racing Services and tell them what matters to you. Call now on 1300 WRacing or email services at walkinshawracing.com.au.